Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. And thank you all for being here this morning. So this Sunday in our church's calendar, you may not have heard of before. Uh, It's called Rogation Sunday. And so when you're in your book of common prayer and it says this particular week of Easter, it'll say like in parentheses, Rogation or Rogation Sunday. What is a Rogation? And it's a great, um, it it dovetails very nicely, actually, with our sermon series that we've been in, in 1 Peter. So the image on this screen um, is a painting of a French Catholic parish. You know, if you came from an evangelical background, you may be used to thinking of churches as buildings or a locale, but like a parish would have been a geographic boundary, uh, and a parish church is where the parish would gather for worship. Down if you're in Louisiana, they still call their counties parishes. Right? It's a holdover from the French Catholic tradition. And so the, here the, the parish community is gathering in procession uh, for a rogation, processions of prayer around the farmlands. Uh, They call it beating the bounds of the parish, praying for God's uh, will and prosperity over the work of people's hands. It actually worked nicely to have yesterday's prayer walk as uh, happening the day before our rogation Sunday. And so on this day, uh, we're reminded that God cares about the things that we put our hands to and our minds to. And we're asking for God's provision. We're asking for him to bless the significance of the work of our hands. And it always precedes the ascension of Jesus. So if you think about uh, this time, this is a very productive time in nature. If you were to go on a nature walk, you would see poplar trees blooming. Have you seen those giant uh, poplar trees with the yellow uh, tulip-looking things? They're beautiful. You would see azalea flowers blooming, although a lot of those azaleas probably fell off yesterday, but you get the idea. You would see, um, if you were to go to a pond, you would find little baby turtles crawling across the sidewalk, uh, or baby frogs getting their legs finally. Two nights ago, we went on a hike where we're going to do the men's hike next month, and um, Cole looks at us and goes, Dad, look, it's a bug. It was a spider the size of my palm, and and it had an egg sack about the size of a quarter. Um, so this is a time of productivity on God's creation. Even the, the gigantic hand-sized spiders are there. So, men, bring your boys. It's going to be fun. Um, so on Easter Sunday, you know, until now, Jesus has been walking around on the earth with his disciples giving instruction. Think about that. So you kind of wonder, like, oh, yeah, what did Jesus do after he rose from the dead? That's like a long time. It's like 40 days where Jesus is walking around explaining the significance of his resurrection, encouraging people, telling them how to live out life in the kingdom of God. And and so now this Thursday, we celebrate Jesus's ascension into heaven where he leaves. He, he leaves to reign, to rule victorious over death, the grave, over every kingdom of this world. And because Jesus reigns, it gives significance to the work of our hands. Our labor is not in vain. And there's this beautiful mystery that if we were to just stop and kind of look out at nature that we would see, you would see seeds that 
have fallen into the cold, dark ground, uh, overwintered. And then after a little time, those shoots start to come up. Those little tiny green specks of, of leaves, these seedlings coming up, and then flowers coming into bloom and seeds falling to the ground again. There's a productivity in this season uh, in the natural world that's not just productive, it's pretty to look at. It brings us joy. Uh, I get joy when I look out my window and I see my marigolds. Uh, the, the natural world reminds us that the darkness of death couldn't hold our Lord. Uh, when you look at a flower, you can be reminded of Jesus's victory and his ascension. The earth itself couldn't contain our creator. And so he ascends on high to complete the new work of creation. And as he rules and as he reigns on high, his productivity is felt as he gives his people the Holy Spirit, which we'll celebrate on Pentecost Sunday. So that our labors, too, are hallowed. Um, they become productive in the economy of the kingdom of God. So, Rogation Sunday. It's a word, uh, one that you may not have heard of, and it's a very significant day. It invites us to pray, to ask Jesus for productivity in the kingdom of God, in the things that he has given you and I to do with our hands, with our minds, with the places we go. Our callings uh, into the places that might feel most mundane are actually heavenly callings. They're imbued with a heavenly significance because Jesus ascended on high. And so we should also take time each week, not just for ourselves individually, but to pray for heavenly productivity in the church, the corporate body. I hope you do. Um, today's passage in first Peter, as I was praying about this, it really outlines what I would call rhythms for productivity in a church. How does a church become productive? What are its rhythms? And so I don't do this a lot, but I'm, I'm going to stay with just one, one verse today. Uh, first Peter chapter three, verse eight. And what it does is it reminds the church to be a safe place of refuge, to develop habits of thought and life that move us together to the love of Christ. The church is, is supposed to be like a hospital. Um, it, it's to bind up wounded travelers who are wearied because this world's hard to live in. And, and so the church needs to be the place where the medicine of life is poured on our cuts and our lacerations, where we're given the band-aids and the ointments that we need to heal, and where we're learning to walk again. Uh, in this world that is really hard. So the church is kind of like a hospital when it's healthy. And these new habits of heart and life that flow from following Jesus are supposed to be practiced first in the church so that they can be lived out then in the world. And so we have this rule of, of rhythms that govern a productive church. There are five attitudes that he talks about in this, in this verse that the church should bring uh, to bring healing and restoration to others, And they are unity of mind, being filled with sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, and humility. And so those first two, unity of mind and sympathy, those were actually common to pagan philosophy. That wouldn't have been a surprise to the, the neighbors of those that he's writing to. Even in Greek philosophy, you remember we spoke a few weeks ago about in, in Greek philosophy, the household unit was the the basis for civil society. And so a well-ordered household was the basis for a well-ordered civitas or society. And, and so these Christians in this case can agree with the, the pagan philosophers that these two things are in fact 
healthy in the church, that we need to have unity of mind and sympathy. Um, Unity of mind, it involves an effort on our part to reducing to a, a minimum those places where we have disagreement. There's an effort to discerning what arguments to pick up and what arguments to leave off. Right? Not everything rises to the level of needing to be addressed at all times. That would be exhausting. And maybe you, think, maybe you grew up in a family like that. It is exhausting. So we want to discern together. How do we minimize those places of difference to have unity of mind? You know, think about places where you, like, where, where do you send your kids to school? What job do you take? Where do you live? Uh, to who, for whom do you vote? How much time do you spend on leisure? Where do you do it? How, how do you delineate duties within your household? Part of having unity of, minds, of mind means minimizing the places of unnecessary agreement. So not letting those rise to the level of necessarily addressing with one another, unless I was asking for advice. Um, but learning to, to discern what are the things that rise to the level of addressing with one another. And, and I've mentioned this before, but conflict can be really productive. There are places where conflict is necessary for our growth, but the key is, is figuring out which battles uh, we need to fight. Uh, and not just engaging in right conflict, but doing it with a heart that seeks the best for the other person. And that can also just help us discern how to put down a defensive or offensive posture and, and adopt a listening posture to listen well to ask questions if we don't understand why someone has done the things that they've done. If we adopt a posture of listening, we can minimize those places of disagreement. It helps us to develop unity of mind very practically. So discerning which battles to pick up and and to minimize areas of disagreement is also this commitment to letting the Holy Spirit do his work in another person. It's this commitment I have to say, you know what, I'm not going to try and fix that person. That's really hard, right? That's our tendency. And so actually, I'm just preaching to myself right now. Uh, But it's that commitment to say, Holy Spirit, I will let you work in that person. And I'm going to trust you that I can put this argument down. And I will genuinely listen with an open posture and a caring heart to minimize the places of disagreement so that uh, I am not pushing my will over yours. It's really hard. But that's unity of mind. The second characteristic in our rule of a productive community is being full of sympathy, full of sympathy. And again, this is also true in pagan philosophy. It's something that entails a readiness on our part to enter with somebody into and share their feelings. Um, There is the depth of my desires in, in sympathy because sympathy invites me to refuse to actually talk about myself for a few minutes um, long enough to hear somebody else's joy without imparting my own self on their joy or to hear their sorrow without imposing myself onto their sorrow, but to just listen um, and as is appropriate to bear with them in that joy or that sorrow to rejoice with them or to sorrow with them without interjecting um, or without Projecting, let's say if they're joyful, without projecting my sorrow into their joy. That's maturity. 
and, and sympathy. And so even, you know, if, if we've had a challenging week, uh, what sympathy does is it calls us to listen. And if somebody is sharing the really good things that have happened this week, to not sort of scorn them inside or to say, well, I wish that had happened to me, but to learn to actually rejoice with them, even though, man, it's been a rough week. And then eventually, hopefully they'll ask you how you're doing and you can share. And there's not this weirdness about, well, I'm sorry I was so happy because there's times where we go up and down together in community. But maturity is this ability uh, and sympathy is this ability to exercise restraint uh, in ourselves in order to move at the pace of somebody else's emotional and mental and spiritual processing. So exercising restraint for ourselves to move at the pace of somebody else's mental, emotional, or spiritual processing. We need to ask questions that are going to help people process what's happening in their souls. And we can practice that by having a few simple questions that that begin a conversation and then just listen. Think about a question like, what was something that brought you joy this week? Very simple, very practical. It allows them to talk. Um, I'm guilty of saying often, how was your week? And then you're kind of left going, oh, there was a million things that happened this week. How do I generally feel about this week? Uh, I can't think of one thing. Oh, it's, it was fine, right? It, like, it sort of just kills the conversation. But if, if we go back and we get a little specific, we're helping people discern what's the movement that's happening uh, in their own souls and just listening with a, with a good posture of listening. And so going a little deeper, like, you know, what happened this week? How did you feel about that? Uh, What was challenging this week? Those are all productive types of questions that build sympathy. Um, They can be great conversation starters, but I think they cultivate sympathy for one another as we learn and and seek to understand one another. So third, we, we come to now three characteristics that weren't common in pagan philosophy, the first of which was brotherly love. This is a characteristic of, of Christian community, um, like I said, amongst the last three that aren't common to pagan philosophy. It's that love that knits together brothers and sisters in a household, in our case, sons and daughters in the family of God. This is a familial type of love that binds us together to one another. And there are two ways that people can build these kinds of familial relationships at a very practical level. Either you meet frequently for short periods of time, maybe it's a half an hour every week, an hour every week, or you meet infrequently for a very long period of time. So, you know, like in the first, in the former case, think of formation groups, men's breakfasts, whatever. In the second case, think of like a a retreat or a missions trip where they're infrequent, but because you've spent 72 hours together, you have experienced something deep together and, and built a deeper relationship with one another than you had previously. The point is that we need our calendars to allow us to welcome the stranger and then to make them the household of God to us. We need our calendar to allow us to take the stranger and make them the household of God to us. And that means building habits of cultivating healthy familial love in the church. Do we prioritize making one another a part of our households? Uh, Extending the table is another way of saying it. Uh, This often happens around food and frequency. Are we making a habit to have people uh, as an extension of our household? And if not, um, it's 
you know, again, this is not a judgment, but it's a question of why, why don't we do that? You know, you can use that as an examine. What's hard about that? Um, is it is it fear? I mean, that could be something. Uh, is it an overloaded calendar? My suspicion is for people in northern Virginia, it's usually that. <clears throat> so perhaps, you know, you could take a moment to take your calendar out and ask, Lord, where could I find two to three hours in a whole month? And if that sounds overwhelming, think about that for a minute. Two to three hours over the course of 30 days to have somebody over or to meet somebody for lunch or breakfast or dinner. But that can become a habit that can build familial love. If we would, maybe on the first of the month, take out your calendar, ask, where's a a slot this month that I could meet somebody and find somebody to meet you in that slot? Um, But building that frequency of habit to build familial love. Fourth, compassion. Compassion is this deep, intense, emotive compulsion to act in somebody else's best interest. You can think of this in the Bible as the the parable of Jesus where he talks about the shepherd who leaves the 99 and who feels compelled to go after the one who's lost. There's this deep, emotive compulsion to seek the best for somebody else. He isn't mad at the sheep for getting lost. He doesn't scold the sheep and say, why did you go off away from everybody else? This is the safe place. What do you think you're doing? And he doesn't, he refuses to continue to remind the sheep that that sheep was lost or to hold it over their head in any way. He is just grateful that he has found the sheep and he cares about restoring the sheep. And that's compassion, the kind of compassion that we have with one another. It's this deep seeking the best for the other. It's emotional. um, And it's this profound sense that I want somebody else to be blessed, even if that person has hurt me, that I would actually act in such a way that, again, he's going to get in, in this passage. He talks about not reviling for being wronged. But it's this deep compassion that even when wronged, I can pray blessing on somebody. And that's hard to do. That is not common in the world, right? Uh, I'm going to get mine. You can hear phrases, you know, about revenge and vengeance. But it's this commitment to to love and bless other people um, deeply. And fifth and finally is humility, or humble-minded in some translations. And I find humility to be the most challenging Um, Not just because it wasn't in pagan philosophy, it's actually contrary to the neighbors. So so when these Christians are having dinner with their neighbors and they say this is a value of our community, their community is looking at them like, yeah, you guys are weird. Um, You know, I can imagine if you've had, let's say, dinner with friends who aren't a part of a church and they're talking about all the things they've done uh, in life and it's starting to feel really awkward because you don't share the same experiences this is humility uh, to, to this day and age that Peter's writing. And it's this unique quality that's patterned on the example of Jesus. That's the heart of it, is the example of Christ. So sometimes humility looks like not needing to have the last word with somebody else, just refusing to get that last final word in to feel, to, to feel um, justified. Sometimes it looks like canceling an appointment that you had in order to drive somebody who didn't have a ride somewhere to inconvenience yourself 
for the sake of another person. Sometimes it looks for praying for God's blessing on people who have really hurt us and truly meaning it. Uh, Sometimes it looks like apologizing for a mistake that we've made when it might feel embarrassing uh, to apologize. Like I think of parenting a lot and the amount of times I've told my spiritual director that I'm failing as a father. So fathers, if that's you this morning, uh, you're not alone. Um, But, you know, I've had to learn to actually apologize um, to my son as an example. And so humility is is having this right view of ourselves in the context of the family of God. Who are we in the context of the family? That means it's not self-loathing, that we're not self-deprecating, we don't hate ourselves, but there is this love that is contextualized as sons and daughters of the king. It's understanding that you and I are loved by God, that he actually loves Father Ryan as much as he loves myself and Carol as much as Stephen. And, and uh, you know, so we, we go around the room, God loves each person individually, and the understanding that that person is loved by God as much as I am has a huge implication on how I treat that person or pray for them. Uh, it, humility can mean putting the health of others above my own uh, ego and my own reputation. And so I was thinking, there's a book, uh, a leadership author I like, named Patrick Lencioni. And in one of his books, he's got a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And one of the dysfunctions that he talks about in just organizational health is uh, putting ego over organizational health. And so we've had this happen in a company generally where somebody's got an idea they don't want to let go of and they feel really hurt that it's not going to happen, uh, you know, instead of thinking about what the organization needs. So one of the things that we've done in our church is that Jody helped me develop a form for starting new ministries uh, to help us all think about the church's health together. So people are going to come with ideas and say, hey, we should do this or that ministry Um, And I love that. And I never want to discourage that. I love it when you come to me and say, I have an idea for a ministry. So keep doing that. And then after giving me an idea, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a form to think through. Uh, Not because I like paperwork. I actually really don't. But I, I want you to go through the process of fleshing out your idea and thinking beyond what you think is good to what's good for the church. Um, taking the the time to think through the theology of it and the steps to implement it, thinking about who to involve, how to involve the whole church, connecting it to the vision of the church, and, importantly, how much it's going to cost. All those things are really important. So I I don't know if you know this, but I actually do that. Every time I want to start a ministry, I make myself go through the process so that I'm just not starting things ad hoc. It's a check on myself to make sure that I'm adding ministries in response to the Holy Spirit for the health of the church and not just to build up something for my own ego or, or reputation. And so the thing is, like, I'm not, I'm not the church. I'm here called to build up the church to, uh, to minister, and you all are the church. And, and, in fact, I can't even be a member of a parish, true story, uh, because clergy can't be members of a local parish. But... You all can, and you all are part of this church, and I'm here to help equip you to do the work in the ministry. And so God has called you, each one of you, to be here um, to build up the body of Christ. And so I am, I'm looking forward to the ways that you are going to create uh, initiatives and have ideas for programs. 
And then humility is about seeking for the health of others uh, as you think of those programs for the health of the body of Christ above our own comfort or reputation or opining for a ministry that we used to have growing up. It gets us past that to think through the health of the church. So we've been in one verse today, 1 Peter 3, 8. Um, You can meditate on it. Think about these five qualities. But I think it contains the underpinnings for us of, of rhythms that shape a productive community, a community that helps people grow in their love of Christ and creates a safe place for people to find healing and grace so that as they learn it here, they can extend it outside the church. Or to think of it in terms of Rogation Sunday, um, there are five qualities that describe a productive church. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, humility. Do we have personal and corporate rhythms that are going to foster these, that are going to foster a productive church? Are we extending our households to others in the church? Are we asking deeper questions so that we can properly understand and appreciate uh, people that have different opinions or thoughts about a matter? Are we prioritizing getting together with others and possibly saying no to other good things in order to do that with one another? Are we deeply investing ourselves in seeking the best for others around us? And are we quick to take ownership of our mistakes and to apologize for them And are we praying regularly for ways to build up uh, this church, this community of believers? These are the habits and the rhythms that build up the productive church. Those very practical things. These new habits of heart and life that flow from following Jesus, according to this passage, are supposed to be practiced in the church so that they can be lived out in the world. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, whose Son, Jesus Christ, in his earthly life, shared our toil and hallowed our labor, be present with your people where they work. Make those who carry on the industries and commerce of this land responsive to your will. And give us all a right satisfaction in what we do and a just return for our labor. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen.